All right, we'll turn again to Hosea. And uh, I'll read to you the first three verses. Hosea, in the first three verses. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. I want to uh, preach three times in the next three Sunday mornings on the book of Hosea. I heard Ian Parry and uh, I've used his material at the Ballard Conference and then Gareth Edwards preached a few months ago and so helpfully and it stirred me up to look at this again. He lived at hard times for true religion. He was nicknamed the deathbed prophet because uh, he read the nation's last rites. This uh, nation was facing the Assyrian army. It was marshalling and preparing to invade. Israel was contemptuous of of Assyria. It was also contemptuous of the Lord. It had no respect for God or man. And so to chasten it, the long-suffering God who had done so much and sent so many prophets for a long time to the rebellious ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, he permitted the Assyrian army to come in and uh, to attack Israel. He he used it as a rod, a chastening rod. And we know what happened subsequently, that the northern kingdom was (laughs) totally destroyed. It was de-covenanted. It was taken into captivity to Assyria, the kingdom of darkness. The ten tribes were annihilated. We call them today the lost tribes. They disappeared from the planet. They were absorbed into the uh, Assyrian empire through... Uh, intermarriage and uh, interfaith and they never returned to the northern kingdom again. They had sowed inequality and injustice and paganism and blasphemy and idolatry and they reaped condemnation and the loss of God. The message of Hosea was still a message of entreaty to them. Let's press on to know the Lord. That's his great theme. And the biggest battle that we'll ever face as a congregation, as families, as individuals, is to put that that at the center. To put it on a card and put it in front of our computer screen and put it on a desk and put it on a magnet on, on the fridge. Let us press on to know the Lord. Everything in your life and everything in your service of God and things in the professing church and everything in our culture would want to bury that longing. There's no end of other things, other stuff, good stuff, important things that will come in and push that out and marginalize that. They're good things, many of them are, aren't they? But they're not the one thing. And so we are confronted with this message of Hosea. And uh, there's just one thing that the people must do. And uh, so that's why we're looking at this prophecy. 
He catches most people by surprise, the people who refuse to recognize God, who say God is distant and God is unknowable, people who have the most flimsy, cobwebby relationship with God, people who are clamping down and clamping down on the truth of the beauty of God on a lovely winter's day like today as we come and the sky is blue and there's a sharp, clear wind. God speaks to us, the great God. He speaks to us in our conscience. He said to you, you ought to go along to church on Sunday morning. And Hosea confronts these people. And the first thing he says, the great thing he says to them is, you have a broken relationship with God. That's what he brings to these people. He could have pointed out their many aberrations, their immorality and broken marriages and easy divorce and muddled thinking and religious syncretism as they worshipped Jehovah and worshipped the Baals at the same time. He could raise up many critiques of them. But he made just, in this one critique, he says, your relationship with God is a broken relationship. And so lots of problems have come into your life because of that. That's what's wrong with Israel. Not the circumstances, not the uh, Assyrian threat there in the background all the time, not their domestic relationships. And I'm saying that's just the parallel with us in Wales today. That's what explains us and explains our lives. We are estranged from the God who made us. The creator whose presence is here, who daily blesses us, the God we don't acknowledge. The world as we see it today, Paris, it's rubble. It's like the set of a post-apocalyptic movie. We're looking at the world today and we're looking at the consequences of what once happened A great rebellion took place on this planet against the maker and sustainer of the planet. And today, men and women are eking out some kind of existence in a groaning universe. Men are rebels. They take uh, rifles, Kalashnikovs, and they shoot and kill 125 young Parisians, whom they've never, never seen before that day, and then they kill themselves. And yet, those same men and women are made in God's image. They are the men who cover their girlfriends with their bodies and will take the bullets themselves rather than their girlfriends or their loved ones. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. Man is made by God and for God. And we see the image of God in the heroic, Love that was shown in Paris, and man is a rebel and fiercely opposed to God, and we see it in the cruelty and the horror of Paris. So I've got to preach this message, and uh, how can I get help? How can we get help? What can Hosea say that can help us? Well, the first thing he does to help us is to say that Man's broken relationship with God has to be told 
sinner to sinner. When Hosea spoke about sin and a broken relationship with Jehovah, he wasn't dealing with dogma or ideas or a philosophy or theories. When Hosea was considering his family, his larger family, his neighbors, his village, it was a painful reality. And at the heart of this prophecy that he wrote is his actual marriage to a woman called Goma. He got married to this woman who in the future would be hopelessly unfaithful to him and sleep around, as they say. So his painful and broken marriage became a living parable. It was God who commanded him to take this woman and warned him of the pain that was before him. But God linked it immediately to the fact that he was the spokesman to this people and they were a guilty and spiritually adulterous nation in that they departed from the Lord and they'd fallen in love with all the beautiful idols of the Baals that were everywhere. And so uh, one day God came to him and God said to him, Hosea, I've got good news for you. I've got a wife for you. Wow, he said, or whatever the Hebrew equivalent was. Romance in the manse. Great. Who is it, Lord? Her name is Goma. She's the girl for you. Great, he said. But there's one thing else you need to know. She's going to break your heart as Israel has broken my heart. What do you mean, Lord? She's not going to be faithful to you. When she gets pregnant... You're not going to be sure whether you are the father. Go ahead now and marry her. And Hosea does. It's a brief conversation. All those conversations in the Bible seem to me to be so brief. The serpent and Eve, five minutes, it's all over. Jesus and Zacchaeus up the tree, two minutes, it's all over. The rich young ruler and our Lord, five minutes, And yet what far-reaching consequences there are from that conversation you had when your friend said, come to the CU, come come to church with me. There's a book I found helpful, read this. Here's Luke's Gospel. It's a wonderful story of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first child born to them, Jezreel, was certainly fathered by Hosea. But it's perplexing whether to know he was the father of the second child, Lo Ruhama, or of the third child, Lo Ami. And as the story progresses, it seems horrible to us to discover that Goma was a serial adulteress, that she descends eventually into prostitution, and the marriage ends in divorce. And the tensions of it, of a broken marriage, are passed over. The arguments, the postulations. The agony of wondering where she is this night. The waiting up until dawn for her to come home. But my point is this, that uh, Hosea learned about sin not by learning a wonderful catechism definition of it. I think that those are essential. But he knew the pain of sin and its process and its killing work in a relationship 
and its shame and the tears that it causes, he knew that from his own brokenness. And he's teaching us in the same way that part of our witness to people is um, our testimony to the brokenness that we've had. The problems that came into our life and we didn't handle them properly. How we were crushed by the strength of a temptation. And we know the consequences for ourselves. And it's crucial that uh, we know our own hearts when we bear testimony to other people. There's a fine missionary I know who I love him. (laughs) And I remember when he was a student here. His mother was an alcoholic. And he came, he wanted to see me one day, and we sat in the manse, and oh, he went round the subject for a long time. And finally he told me about her. Such hesitation, such shame. And now he has to bring the experience of broken promises and lies and grief into his preaching, into his counseling which he does, and that's made him a finer and more helpful preacher-pastor. We speak sinner to sinner. We speak with words that don't begin here or here, but come from within us, from that dispositional complex of uh, feelings and convictions out of which all the issues of life come from our hearts. We can't forget the grace that had mercy on us and delivered us and sustains us. Now, there's a problem that we face uh, today. Um, People don't come to church because they think it's for the righteous and for the self-righteous. Good people go to church or people who think that they are good go there. And that's the culture that we're in and so we've got a problem the world thinks that we think that we are better than they are we are different from them and they are not the right sort of people to come to church and they'd stick out like a sore thumb if they came and that is one problem and another problem in part is that we don't help ourselves by our stance in my preaching I'm interested in the text and interested in the context, but there is also the subtext. What's under the text, and that is what's in my own heart, and my own affections, and attitudes. And it will always creep out. I won't be always talking about it. But if there is overmuch self-righteousness in my heart, it's going to show, inevitably, it's going to come across, and the texture of it is going to be felt by the congregation. There's always a subtext. If I think I'm okay and you are not, and you need to become like me, it's going to come out in the way I talk and the way I strut my stuff. Truth will out. That's behind the comment, isn't it, that uh, McShane makes, that, oh, A holy minister is a fearful weapon in the hands of God. But a proud and self-righteous and self-confident minister is a rotten weapon 
in the hands of God. God doesn't use such people. We say the things that we feel deep down in our hearts. They're going to color everything and shape everything. So preaching sinner to sinner is not as easy as you might think it is. There's a context there. And the only way you can do it is when what you feel in your heart is a reality. So that you have in one ear a voice saying, um, I called you to preach my word. Preach it. Preach my word. Be faithful to my word. And in uh, another ear, there's a voice that says, remember you're a sinner. And every virtue you possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are mine. You can do all things only through me. Only through me will you be of any good. Only if I bless. God resists the proud, it says, but gives grace to the humble. When we are sensitive to the world around us, then we feel that many people are aware of their brokenness. They don't understand it. And what they don't want is condemnation from the self-righteous. Then they need some light. They need a... uh, an outstretched hand, an arm around them, metaphorically, to know that we know how hard it is. It is hard for some people. And we've been there. And that spirit then needs to be our subtext. There was a woman in Samaria. And finally, after Jesus had dealt with her for a while, she said, come and see the man who told me all the things I ever did. Couldn't this be the Christ? And that's the subtext then that we all need in our face to the world. Come and, and, and see. Come and find it for yourself. And so as we think about this first point of preaching to a broken world, um, sinner to sinner, we, we have to remember Romans. We went through Romans, didn't we? Chapters 1 and 2 and 3. Chapter 1 is just the Augustan age, it's um, Nero, it's Rome, it's slavery, it's prostitution, it's children being abandoned, it's all sorts of wickedness, terrible behavior. Look at the Gentiles, look what they're up to, dastardly behavior. Chapter 2, he turns to the Jews. And he says, you know better with your education and your clean lives and your moral values. You're just as bad. You are. Your hypocrisy and pride and self-righteousness and smugness and contempt for those who are not Jews. It's just another way of being lost. And then he comes to the great climax, chapter 3, and he says, All, 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 all have sinned. And you've come short of the standard. The standard is not your conscience. Not the moral consensus of the group you live amongst. But the standard is the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So whether you're a Romans 1 sort of sinner or a Romans 2 sort of sinner, you're under this great umbrella 
of God knowing, God knowing the things that are in your heart. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You simply live in another cabin on the Titanic. So, firstly, then, our message is told sinner to sinner. And secondly, man's broken relationship with God is explained close and personal. Now, there is no doubt that for uh, Hosea, sin is the uh, lack of conformity unto or the breaking of the law of God. There's no doubt about that. There are great tracts of this prophecy when Hosea becomes the prosecuting counsel and he brings this charge and that charge and that charge against the people. The curses of the broken covenant. Plenty of that legal stuff. That is not what you bring away with when you read Hosea. He doesn't portray to Israel their conduct so much as breaking God's law, but betraying God's love. It's not so much as an emphasis on the rule book broken, and you need to pay the fine, do your time, and move on. It's that. Yes, it is that. But it's more. In the way that he talks about sin all through this book, Hosea is saying, Oh, Israel, you've not simply forgotten God, you've replaced God. He speaks about their idolatry. They're falling down before idols and uh, they're worshipping idols. And he tells them in the fourth chapter, a spirit of prostitution is leading them astray. They were being unfaithful to a loving and a merciful God. They didn't seem to be a hill, a hillock left in Israel, which didn't have a shrine to Baal on its top and an altar on it. And under its trees, the oak and the poplar were groves dedicated to Baal. They'd forgotten God and they'd replaced God with idols of wood and stone. But they're not just the simple straightforward idols that we see pictures of on documentaries of India and and Hindu temples. In chapter 5, Hosea looks at the surrounding nations and alliances and the seduction of power sharing. And he says, when Ephraim, that's another word for Israel, when Ephraim saw his sickness, when he realized he was sick, what did Israel do? Did he turn to the Lord? No. Then Ephraim turned to Assyria. And he sent ambassadors and he sent gifts And he would sign a covenant and a treaty with Assyria for help. The idea of political power had got them. And that's the kind of idolatry that's everywhere in Wales today. Wealth and power and self and all the worship that centers on that. You know, I was in a funeral, I told you, uh, this year. And the tribute was paid to the woman who was being buried. And the two things in her life... Her son-in-law told us the two things in her life that she loved were the soaps. She never missed Corrie or EastEnders. She never missed, she always, oh, she had to have her soaps. And shopping. Those were the two things. That's what she took beyond the grave to the living God. 
in chapter 12 and verse 8 of Hosea, we hear the people saying, I'm very rich, I've become wealthy with all my wealth. They'll not find in me any iniquity or sin. They won't find it in me. And that's the kind of idolatry that has made them confidence that all is well between them and their God. Because they never committed a crime. They never faced stoning. They didn't have to appear before the elders in the city gates. They didn't. They thought then they were sinless. Augustine described sin as disordered love. Calvin famously talked about the heart as an idle factory. Just churns them out. It's a conveyor belt and it has different stages of our lives. We have idols that we serve. Luther said, whatever our hearts cling to and we rely upon, that becomes our God. We seem to be made to be dazzled. Always. Did you see it? You see it on Saturday night? Did you? Have you been there? Did you hear it? Have you eaten there? Have you drunk this real ale? Have you heard the latest? Do you know where I got this outfit? And there is need in a fallen world to be dazzled by something. It's unavoidable. And this desire and reflex we have to fix onto something and enthuse about something, we take it and we elevate it. And we design ourselves in its image. It grips us. Why the, the passion about money? Why does it grip us and hold us? Well, because it's not just money, is it? It's not just a wad in your pocket or a good positive statement from the bank on a monthly statement comes through the post. It is hope. It is security. It is pleasure. It is identity. It is salvation. It's pretty scary. And we take that on board. That idol. The dearest idols we know. And then we examine ourselves. Our desire for church growth. And our own congregation to grow. And why? Is it for God's glory and honor? Is it that the Jesus Christ seems massive and glorious and beautiful? Or is it for personal vindication? And our being honored? We think in our hearts that unless we have ministerial success, then we are a nobody. And that's, if you have that spirit, then in that soil, self-pity and resentment and criticism and anger and depression are nourished and grow. And so in chapter 11 of the prophecy, the climax of the prophecy is God is disappointed with his people. Oh, that's a challenge, isn't it? Is God disappointed with me? Was the Lord Jesus disappointed with Peter? Was he disappointed with the lukewarmness of the Laodicean congregation? And Hosea starts and he makes his message very concrete and very real. 
he, he wants to communicate with an agricultural community that he serves. And so um, he speaks about, you know the disappointments of farming, he says. You, you've got a, a vineyard and the weather's been odd and you've, you find that the grapes this year are like sh- bitter gooseberries, hard, sharp. You know the disappointment. You hoped there would be a crop that would be luscious. Or oh, you know um, when you have a heifer and it's stubborn and it, it's just so awkward and it's the most difficult and it stirs up trouble with the other cows and uh, it refuses to be domesticated to go from one pasture to another to do whatever heifers are supposed to do. And they knew. They, they knew that. And he'd grown up in an agricultural community, community and he'd heard people talking. And you know disappointments as farmers, don't you? God is disappointed with you, he says. And then he moves on and he's got that. He's communicating to them then on the agricultural level, on the agricultural metaphor. But he he gets a bit closer and he says, uh, God is full of sorrow for you because he's your father and you're his son. I loved him, God says, when he was in Egypt, in slavery. I loved him then and determined to redeem him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I summoned him out. But the more I entreated them, the more they moved away. Verse 7, my people are determined to move from me. And so this is one of the great pictures. And it starts at the end of the Old Testament where we are. It starts to have more and more light and warmth shone upon it. God is the father of his people. Now, it's not often, not in the Psalms, very often. Not in the prophets, not in Moses, not in the judges. Is God the father. But here he is. And his love has been snubbed. And he's been ignored. And he's been abandoned like the prodigal son abandoned his father. And that is uh, the attitude that the people have. It's not like you turn in the rule book and you come to page 41 and there's a clause there and you're breaking that clause. It's not like that. There are clauses. Sermon on the Mount has clauses that are very convicting. But it says that you're a sinner And what kind of sinner are you? Well, you're a mini prodigal son. You are the younger son in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. You are the heartbreaker. God's so good. And you're so indifferent to his kindness and goodness to you. But then he moves. So he starts with the agricultural. And then he moves to the father-son relationship. And then he moves on again. To marriage. Sin is the betrayal of a husband by his wife. So he back to Goma. What Goma did. Goma didn't say, I'm going off with the girls for the weekend to the Mediterranean. I'll be back on Wednesday. She disdained Jose's love. And she went off with lovers. She turned finally to prostitution. She became totally permissive and promiscuous. 
And then he brings that and he says, You are Goma. You've been unfaithful to your loving God. This is what your sin is like. And they haven't got through to it until they could chant off the Ten Commandments. That wasn't good enough. There's a unique relationship that is being destroyed by your behavior. You're a son who's broken the heart of his father. You're a wife who's betrayed a husband. And you haven't understood what sin is until you see that. And that's what Hosea is saying. He takes the law of God and he personalizes it. And he internalizes it. And he applies it to the affections of his hearers. So that he can reach the consciences in a way that the bare knowledge of the Ten Commandments hasn't done. A man's idol, a woman's idol is powerful. What foolish things a woman will do because she idolizes someone. She's met him in work and oh, she just thinks he's gorgeous. She will leave her husband. She will leave her children. And she'll go off and she'll live in Canada with him. Because she's utterly infatuated with him. She's fallen for him. She idolizes him. This is what Israel has done towards Jehovah. And he calls it adultery all the time. You're a Your adultery is idolatry. They are parallel. They are both covenantal relationships with your husband and with your God. And he's saying that the desire we have to worship something is very powerful. It's just as powerful as becoming locked into a person and infatuating, waiting for the phone to ring and an email to appear and looking to see his face. Again, we're always reaching out for something, to hold on to it, to be with someone. Your heart is a magnet and it's drawn out then to someone else. It's a reflex. It's a drawing away of my affections for someone. Morning, noon and night when I lie in bed, I just think about that person. So sin is something close and constant. And it's seeking for somebody else to worship. And we're doing that, aren't we? Our hearts are restless. You never see such restlessness as you do on a Saturday night or a Friday night. And the people that wander around the town and they're dressed up and they're going from one pub to another. They're very restless people. We are bored people and we want new stimulants all the time. And people are saying, is this what life is all about? Is it just this? And they're very depressed. And they're looking to those things in order to give them rest. You know, when someone is, uh, is killed uh, um, by a terrorist and their, their parents pay a tribute to them, they are virginally intellectually, morally, perfect people, aren't they? He would do anything to help anyone. Well, what need does such a person have for a saviour? What need does he have for redemption if he lives such a perfect life? 
He said, well, at least I'm not like him. I always do my best, and uh, who can ask anything more than that? And who's to say what's right and what's wrong? Relativism is everywhere. It's part of people's philosophy. Tomorrow, it's the main fair tomorrow, and the book uh, trailer will be there, and our friends from the Welsh Church will be there, and when you go down to the Dodgems and the rifle range and so on, and pause for a minute and speak to them, say, you're a Christian and you come to us, and it'll encourage them. They will be locked in intellectual conversations of the deepest philosophy straight away. People don't realize that it's like that. But that's what you find. There are the most sophisticated arguments for people not believing in God. And they'll give it. They're so crafty about wriggling out of the absolute standards that a holy God gives. Every natural man is smart like that. Your students, you, you know when you talk to them. And Hosea is saying sin is betrayal. It's a betrayal of all that a loving God has given to you, of his immeasurable kindness, all the great things in your life. God is the author of them. And you know that gets through, doesn't it? Can you imagine your son, he brings a girl home and boy, he loves her, marries her, works so hard for her, builds a house. So he finishes his job and he works in the evenings and he builds and builds the house and then he starts a business of his own. And he's doing 18 hours a day working on his business and it's because he loves her and he loves the children. She's unfaithful. She goes off with fellas. And you discover it. And you've babysat for them. And you've given money to help them. And she treats your son who adores her in that way. She's sleeping around. And that's what Isaiah is saying. God hasn't simply given you health and strength and prosperity and peace. But he loves you. He loves you. He's benevolent and he's kind. And his love is not like a great bank manager or financial advisor who will be really good and and give you a, a loan and a low discount and so on. He's the husband who wooed you and won you and boasts to his customers he's the luckiest man in the world that no one has got a more wonderful wife than he has. And he sends you little messages. He sends you tweets and emails and he calls you. How are things? Are you okay? He says. He says, I love you more than I loved you yesterday, but not as much as I, I love you tomorrow. He tells you all those things. God is like this. He don't want your money. He don't want your service, your work, what you can do for him. He wants you. He wants you to give your life to him and serve him. That's what he's after. And then you have it in Isaiah 62, you have this wonderful picture of God, not just the husband, but God the bridegroom. And he's there, he's there waiting, and then he's, and she comes down, beaming, looking gorgeous on the arm of her father, and he sees her, he sees her. In Samuel's time, he won't have the great excitement that he has on his wedding day, when she comes into the church, he's electrified. The thrill, the joy, his friends, the cameras flashing, the videos. 
God says, that's how I feel about you. That's what God is saying. You understand that? I rejoice like a bridegroom rejoices over his new bride. That is what we've sinned against. I want you to see it. I want you to be confronted with the reality of the loving God whose love you have spurned. The God who is light, in whom there's no meanness or irascibility. You gave us that lovely cake, and you had inscribed on that cake four great words. Four true words, and so they are great. Great is your faithfulness. That's what you wrote. And his faithfulness is so great to us. Because he is love through and through and through. And he is light through and through and through. And he can't deny himself. That's why he's so great. Sin is a rejection of that. And lastly, uh, man's broken relationship with God is the best news that anyone could hear. Israel didn't accept that. You see, they looked at rotten leadership. We've got no leaders in our land. We never had their fathers and their fathers before them. They were all rotters. That's what they said. And then they complained about Assyria and its intentions and Babylon and Egypt. And that's what the world does today. It says we've got no political leaders in our land or the nations of the world. And it gives sociological reasons for cruelty. Uh, they, they had bad company. They had bad teachers. They were radicalized in a mosque or in a prison. And man is in the state he is because of relational reasons. And so that's bad news, isn't it? Because all the time then you're spending the rest of your life reforming, reorganizing, educating, legislating, taxing and taxing to deal with institutions at all sorts of levels and always being on the road and looking for another place to live and another society, no freedom. You're a captive to your culture. Or you look at psychological reasons. You say, well, it's because of the legacy of the survival of the fittest. It's a relic of the beast in us. And there's truth in it, isn't it? In the sociological explanations and the psychological explanations. But the world says, that's the solution. Do you understand? The world says knowing that it's because of society and knowing because it's, that's how we are made. That's the solution. Is that good news? To go back into my history and back into my past and my bad choices and the bad influences I came under. Why did I go wrong? Why am I just like this? And all I have is man. And I have to sort it out. Of course, I get by with a little help from my friends. But it depends on, do I have friends? And are my friends sensible and wise in their advice? Not good news. They have no sovereign God who says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Your problem is your sin. That's your problem. You rejected me as God. The loving and kind and good God. Your creator, your sustainer, the author of everything that's grand in the world. And you're a sinner and you've got to take responsibility for your sin. And you've got to go to this God and say, I know, I've seen it. 
I'm a sinner. And that's the great divine prognosis. It's good news. Because sin can be forgiven. Burdens can be lifted. Alienation can be ended. A stony heart can be removed. And a new heart can be given. Weakness can be replaced by divine strength. Despair can be replaced by hope. And annihilation at the end can be replaced with being with God, being with Jesus and like Jesus forever. This is what you discover. No previous experience is necessary. <laughs> you go to God as you are. You have to reach a standard first. You have to come to church ten times before you can respond. I can speak to all of you. And I can say to you, I've got good news for you. I've got a saviour here and he's for you. I've got a teacher and he'll instruct you how you should live. And I've got a, a lamb, a sacrifice, and he'll wash you from your sins. And I've got a, a great king and he'll care for you and he'll work everything for your good. All you bring to God is your sin and your need. All the fitness he requires from you is that you have despaired of man and the world, and yourself getting out of the pit you're in. He'll deliver you. He'll save you. He did it by sending his son, and he took our sin. All of it. Every bit. He knew what was in our hearts. He took it all. The unspeakable, the unrepeatable. He took it all. All our guilt and all our shame. Sin like... A wife's betrayal of a husband sinned like a son's betrayal of his father. Covenantal wantonness. He bore the unbearable in his own body on the tree. He offered himself to God. That was the greatest thing that God ever did. He loved stuff like us. And that's our message. The benefits all become ours because of the judgments that came to Christ. We are pardoned because he was condemned. Because God loved us. That was it. And that's the good news. That's the good news. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray, and help us to speak and understand what Hosea said to the people and help us all here to end the alienation between ourselves and you and just acknowledge that we are pathetic and hopeless and sinful and need mercy from a merciful God for the way we've lived. Help everyone to see this. Holy Spirit, take all that's true in this message and bring it in saving power into the life of everyone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.